Let me just read you a couple of verses as we begin tonight, and then we'll follow on. Colossians 1.16. You don't, I'm going to read three which you don't need to turn to, all right? Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, which are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Revelation 4.11. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you were bought with a price, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, over the years as a pastor, I have conducted dozens of weddings, as you can well imagine. And at every single wedding I have ever conducted, whether here or somewhere else, I always emphasize and make the point to both parties who are getting married, that from that day forward, they belong exclusively to each other. He belongs to her, she belongs to him. They are no longer a single entity. They are one together in Christ. And so... From that moment on, they have lost their autonomy, their singleness, their sovereignty. Call it what you will. It's gone, and it's gone forever. Now, I notice how those scriptures we have just read together reinforces that same concept, that we belong to God, that he created us for himself. In fact, it says our very bodies and our spirits belong to him. We are no longer our own. We no longer have autonomy. We belong exclusively to him. Now, that means then the days of our sovereignty and singleness are over, gone completely. Do we understand that? Do you understand tonight that you definitely are not your own anymore, that you were bought with a price Therefore, your very body and your spirit belongs to God. Now, this is a problem concerning bringing men and women to the cross. Because natural man does not want to think of himself as losing his independence. Natural man doesn't want to give up being, as they would say, captain of their own fate. They do not want anyone else controlling their lives. They want to feel that they themselves are in control. They do not want to hand over the reins of their life to someone else. That's why in the Bible, uh, those enemies of Christ says, we will not have this man to rule over us. And you know, that goes right to the very heart of natural man. When it comes to giving our lives to Jesus... When it comes to realizing that he wants all of us, that he wants our whole body, mind, spirit, soul, the complete man, the complete woman, he wants all of us for himself. 
then that is a challenge that we have to face. Now, if I was to ask you here tonight, all of you, if I was to ask you a simple question, why did Christ die on the cross? I would almost guarantee that all of you would answer that question probably with a simple explanation, because he wants to forgive my sins, or something similar, meaning the same thing. Because he wants to forgive me my sins. Thank God he does. Thank God that that is the answer. But it's only half an answer. There's another side to it. Thank God he wants to forgive us our sins. But Jesus died on the cross for a bigger purpose than just dealing, for, dealing with our sins, absolutely vital as that is. See, the cross is both a negative side and a positive side. On the negative side, a ransom has to be given. A price has to be paid. And the price for Christ was bloodshed, suffering, and death. And that bought for us pardon. That's the negative side. That's what it did for us. It gave us pardon. It forgave us our sins. Thank God for that. But there's a positive side to the cross. Because in saving us, in redeeming us, that was for, not just for our pardon, but for his pleasure, for his purpose to be fulfilled. Christ had a vested interest in us. He didn't just save us just to forgive us our sins, wonderful as that is, but that so that his purposes would be fulfilled through us. That his pleasure would be fulfilled through us. And this is the wonderful thing about the cross. And so we were saved to bring him pleasure. He saved us for a purpose. He has his plans in us to fulfill. His pardon releases us for his purposes. God has got purpose for us. God has got a plan for our lives. God has got a blueprint for us. And whenever we came to the cross and whenever we came and got our sins forgiven, that was the doorway that opened the door for God to fulfill his plans and his purposes within our lives. This is the higher cause of the cross. And that is what most men resist. Because most of us want our own autonomy. We want our own independence. We want to control our lives. We want to live our life the way we want. Now, I'm sure all of us wouldn't mind being forgiven. Who wouldn't want to be forgiven from guilt and shame? That's wonderful. But what about his lordship over our lives? Do we want to submit our whole life to him? Or do we still want to retain our independence, our autonomy? Jesus wants to be Lord. What do we want him to be? And that goes right to the very heart of the gospel. Because when Christ comes to save us, he comes not just to forgive us, but to win us to himself. That all of his pleasure and all of his plans and all of his purposes can be fulfilled through us. And this is the wonderful thing about the gospel. 
Now listen to what it says in Romans 14, verses 7 to 9. The Apostle Paul writing. He says, For none of us lives to himself, none and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again and lived again, listen to this, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. See the emphasis Paul puts here. He died and he rose again, he lived again, that he might be Lord. God wants his son to be Lord in our lives. And it cost him a great deal to become Lord in our lives. Titus 2.14, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Are you beginning to see? Because oftentimes, particularly we preachers, particularly whenever we're reaching out to those who are lost, oftentimes we present what's in it for them to come to Christ. If you come to Christ, you'll get your sins forgiven, your life will change, this is what's in it for you, this is what's going to happen, it's going to be wonderful. And we forget, but what's in it for him? What's in it for the Lord? What does he get out of it? I mean, he's given everything. So what does he get out of it? He wants to be Lord. So the lordship of Christ becomes a very vitally important aspect of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ saves us, not just for our good, but for his glory. You see, without the lordship of Christ, then the cross is simply just rids us of our guilt. Gives us, as it were, a free pass to heaven. Without the Lordship of Christ, it makes no demands upon us. Without the Lordship of Christ, we, we, we want to go to heaven, but we want to live like the world while we're on earth. But once we start to think about the Lordship of Christ, then that puts a demand upon us. That challenges us. Because we realize it's not just coming to the cross and get your sins forgiven, one day you go to heaven, but there's now a demand upon us. For Jesus to be Lord in our lives. Otherwise we just get saved and then we just kind of drift along as we were before. I know, go back to the analogy of marriage. Sometimes men and women get married, particularly men. They get married and then they want to live like a single man after they're married. But you can't. Marriage is never going to work that way. Sure it's not. Because you're no longer a single entity. You belong to her. She belongs to you. You're for one another. And so everything changes. Lordship means ownership. We have become, it says, a purchased possession, belonging exclusively to Christ. For you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Did you notice that? I don't think you did. Do you know I've read that a million times? And it's only this week I really saw this. Let me read that to you again. For you're not your own. You were bought with a price. 
Not just your sins were bought with a price, and they were, but you were bought with a price. So the cross is not just dealing with your sins. It's bringing us to the place where we acknowledge his lordship. This is why Paul in Galatians 2.20 says about Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul had a revelation. And part of that wonderful revelation he had was that, that Christ died for him. Not just his sins that had to be dealt with, but for him. He wanted him. The sin question had to be dealt with. But having dealt with it, Paul moved on from that and said, there's more. Christ wants me, all of me. He wants to be Lord over my whole life. You remember in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, let's have a little look at this just for a second. Concerning the, the betrayal in the garden uh, by Judas. In verse 30, 43, 43 of uh, Mark 14. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him, and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now notice what he said, Rabbi, Rabbi, or Master, Master, or Teacher, Teacher, means the same thing. Now titles are important, very important. If I had the pleasure of meeting the Queen of England, I would have to address her as Your Majesty. If I perhaps met a member of the cabinet of the British government, I'd have to address him as Minister. If I, for instance, on, on, on the other day, I was up in the intensive care where Rachel works, and I, I met Grace there, and we just privately just talked just a moment because she was busy. But had we have spoken in front of the, her colleagues, then I would have called her doctor. I never just would have walked up in the midst of them all and just called her Grace. I'd have given her her title because she's entitled to that because that's the office that she holds. And so titles are important. They denote the office. Now, do you realize that the, apostles, uh, the disciples who became the apostles, do you realize that in the Gospels that they never called Jesus, Jesus? They always called him Lord or Master or Teacher. They're very deferential, acknowledging his office. And Jesus in John 13, 13 said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. 
But Judas never called Jesus Lord. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? It's not revealing. He never called him Lord because he never saw him as Lord. He never acknowledged him as Lord. He acknowledged that he was a great teacher, that he was a master, that he was a rabbi, that he was a great communicator. That's what he was. He could hold people spellbound. He acknowledged all of that, but he never acknowledged him as Lord. And that dark night when he betrayed the Son of God, he called him Rabbi, Rabbi. He couldn't call him Lord because he wasn't his Lord. And he never acknowledged him as that. How do we see Jesus this evening? Is he more than just the one who saved us from our sins, marvelous as that is? Or is he Lord? Do we acknowledge him as Lord? Because once you start to acknowledge him as Lord, then you're handing the reins of your life over to him. And in effect, what you're saying is, Lord, because you are Lord, then you can do with my life what you will. I no longer have autonomy. I no longer have any limitations or restrictions on you. You can do what you will, when you will, how you will. Now, that's a big thing to do, isn't it? But that's exactly what lordship means. That's what he wants us to do and to be like. Jesus is Lord is probably one of the earliest Christian confessions. Apostle Paul in Romans 10 and 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, da 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 da, you will be saved. So it's an important confession. Philippians 2, 10 to 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. <laughs> See the emphasis he puts. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 12 and 3, Paul says, it is only by the Holy Spirit that we can call Jesus Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength and the prompting and the ability to be able to call Jesus Lord. Not just to say those words, but to be able to put that into effect, to make Jesus Lord in our lives. It's only the Holy Spirit can do that, Paul said. I'm quite sure that the reason why the church has so many weak, ineffective, carnal, half-hearted believers 
is because they are saved, but they're not submitted. They're forgiven, but they're not surrendered. They're converted, but they're not consecrated. And it's coming to that place where Jesus Christ is Lord. Clifford said it earlier, Why do you call me Lord, but do not the things which I say? Jesus hit the nail on the head, didn't he? If he is Lord, then obedience follows, doesn't it? Because he's the ruler. He's the head. He's the potentate. He is the king. And if we call him that, then it follows that we obey him. Hmm. He is the Lord from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. Paul said, The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Imagine. The Lord from heaven came to this earth. The Lord of glory became the despised and the rejected one. What condescension. What humility. What grace. What love. That Christ would humble himself and come to this life and this world and live his life and then die, as the Bible says, even the very death of the cross. And even though he was a king of angels, yet he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a borrowed donkey. He is the Lord from heaven, he is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 54 and 5, he's the Lord of hosts. James 5 and 4, Sabaoth, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, James calls him. What does that mean? He's the Lord of the armies of heaven. He's the Lord of the hosts of heaven. Angelic hosts obey his every command. Remember what we said just a few weeks ago at Easter? How that when Peter took out the sword in the garden, Jesus told him to put it away. He said, do you not know that I could pray now and my Father would send 12 legions of angels? Well over 70,000 angels. Do you not know that I could just say a quick prayer and suddenly we'd be surrounded by the hosts of heaven? Because he's the king of angels, isn't he? He's the Lord of the hosts. But even the very hosts of hell tremble and they cry out when he's about. Remember what they said, we beseech you, torment us not, send us not out into the deep. Because he had complete mastery over the very hosts of hell itself. Remember what they said whenever he went to visit over the sea to reach the man of Gadara? Remember what those demons said? Are you coming to torment us before the time? They already know their time's coming. They just thought it was coming a bit earlier. Such is the power of the Lord of the hosts of heaven. He's the host of the heavens. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, all orbit in their courses at his command. He was the one who created all these things. The very hosts of heaven. And every day they're finding out more and more. Did you see in the news the other day? They're making the biggest series of telescopes 
to go further back in the time they say they've ever seen before. <laughs> They'll never be able to get back further and further and further as they think. It doesn't matter how many stars they find or planets they find or galaxies they find, the Lord is the host of all of those. He's Lord over all the hosts of heaven itself. The Bible says he counts the stars and he calls them all by name. This is his omnipotent power. He is the Lord of hosts. And then thirdly, he is the Lord both of the dead and the living. We read the scripture earlier. For to this end Christ died and rose again and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Think about it. There's six billion people on the face of the earth living tonight. Just over a hundred years ago, there was also billions living then, but they're not here anymore. They're departed. And a hundred years prior to that, there was more billions who have long since departed. Billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of dead. And Christ is Lord both of the dead and of the living. He has the keys of death and hell. And he is the Lord of their habitation. He knows where they're going to spend eternity. He's got the keys of it. So when we talk about Jesus being Lord, he's Lord over much more than we envisage. Revelation 14 and 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. What a difference it is to die in the Lord. Can't go into the details, but we saw somebody the other day dying, but it wasn't in the Lord. And it was tragic and sad. No hope, no peace, nothing. Only horror. But when you die in the Lord, it's a difference. Again, as a pastor over many years, I've conducted dozens and dozens of funerals and there's a big difference when you stand at the graveside of a believer and you stand at the graveside of an unbeliever there's a big difference thank God he's the Lord of the dead and of the living and for those that die in the Lord what about those who don't die in the Lord well Revelation 20 there's a scary verse, let me tell you. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. 
and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Because he is both the Lord of the dead and of the living. We're almost through. He is the Lord of glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age. Nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. Hmm. What a title. The Lord of glory. In that beautiful psalm, Psalm 19 I love the beginning of it. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run his race. Its rising is from one end of heaven to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He's the Lord of glory. And even the creation he made glorifies him. Do you know that we are the only creatures out of all God's creation that's in rebellion against its creator? That's true. Out of all of God's marvelous creation in the universe, we're the only ones that's in rebellion against the creator. John 1 and 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, speaking of Jesus. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In Revelation 21, verses 22 to 26, John is speaking, he's seeing the new Jerusalem that's come down out of heaven. That's a marvelous thing. And he's trying to describe it. And then he says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. The Lamb is its light. Imagine Christ seated on his throne illuminates the whole new Jerusalem. No need of the sun, no need of the moon. His effulgent glory 
fills all of heaven. Glory to God. So when the Bible says he's the Lord of glory, let's expand our thinking a little bit. And then almost finally, he is the Lord of the harvest. Matthew 9.38 tells us that. That the world is the field and we are the laborers. And we should pray that the Lord should send forth laborers into his harvest. He equips us for the harvest. He endows us with gifts and graces. One sows, the Bible says, one waters, but it is God who gives the increase because he's the Lord of the harvest. The Bible says there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. Just one person coming to the Lord sets heaven rejoicing. It must be continually rejoicing because all over the world there are multiplied millions that are coming to the Lord. Not in the Western world, by the way, but in all over parts of the world there are millions that's coming uh, to the Lord. Boy, we really need a revival, don't we, in this nation? But are we ready for it? I don't think we are. I don't think we're ready for it. Honestly, I don't think we're ready for it. Would you be ready for meetings every night? Would you be ready for people coming to your door at three in the morning, knocking on your door, anxious about their soul, have to talk to somebody about my soul? Would you be ready for that? I'm not sure that we're ready for that. But he's the Lord of the harvest. And maybe if we prayed more and sought God more, and we're more concerned about lost souls, maybe we'll see the Lord of the harvest in action. Amen? Hmm. He's Lord of the whole earth. He's King of kings. And he is Lord of all lords. What a time that's going to be when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to the earth and the nations of the world will come and pay homage to Christ and every single knee shall bow to the king and every single tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a thrill it must be for his heart whenever we say, Jesus, be Lord in my life. Because that's what he went the cross to do. To get us to that place where we could say, Jesus, be Lord of my life. Control my life. Plan for my life. Direct my steps. Guide me in all that I do. Take my life and use it for your honor and for your glory. That thrills the heart of Jesus. That's why he went to the cross. Had to deal with their sins. Had to get rid of those sins. Had to be forgiven. Had to be under the blood. But hey, from that point onwards, let him be Lord. Amen? Let's pray.